1: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
2: This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Dr. Ed Denny, and I've known him for a long time. He has uh, been putting out research for decades. I always find his data-driven commentary to be very, very interesting. He's, he's a realist when it comes to looking at the market's looking at the economy and figuring out uh the relationship between the two uh he also has a degree of infamy on wall street he's essentially the person who invented the phrase bond vigilantes and talked about the role of the bond market in keeping policymakers honest uh and he also includes uh movie reviews in in his uh weekly commentary he writes daily But we get a a weekly uh, film review, which is always charming. I find his work to be uh, very interesting and somewhat unique amongst the economists of the world. So with no further ado, my interview with Dr. Ed Yardini. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Dr. Ed Yardini. He is president and chief investment strategist at Denny Research. He has a long and storied career on Wall Street, beginning in the early days where he was chief economist at such August firms as E.F. Hutton and then later Prudential Securities. He eventually became chief investment strategist at giant German investment house Deutsche Bank. Uh, this was many years ago. He worked at the Federal Reserve in both Washington, D.C., and New York City, he has a new book out, Predicting the Markets, a Professional Autobiography. Dr. Ed Yardeni, welcome back to Bloomberg. Barry, thank you so much. So let's start at the early parts of your career. Mm-hmm. You worked at the Fed, both both at the New York Fed and the Federal Reserve in D.C., and then you transitioned to Wall Street. What was that changeover like?
0: It was uh, pretty smooth, quite quite honestly. Um, I was at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York uh, for a little over a year. Uh, Part of that, I basically finished my Ph.D. dissertation down at the Federal Reserve Board for a few months. So I don't want to give you the impression that I had a long stint down in Washington. But mm-hmm. I spent a year at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and then I got a call from a headhunter um, who placed economists in uh, banks, and uh, he said, uh, would you be interested in... Um, Taking a job at EF Hutton and I jumped at it because uh, I I did actually want to go to Wall Street. I didn't want to stay in government.
2: When I was a kid, we'll, we'll wax nostalgic here. When yeah. I was a kid, I just have such a vivid recollection of the EF Hutton commercials, and right. I'll put a link up to this on on the post about this. They were uh, seminal. They were there was nothing else like they that. They were a premier firm. Yeah. What what was it like? In those days, at such an august firm like E.F. Hutton. Well,
0: I, I I felt that uh, you know uh, I was set for life. Mm-hmm. I mean, moving into E.F. Hutton back then uh, it was a premier firm, not just uh, in retail but also in the institutional field. Uh, just a very very classy firm. Uh, modern offices down uh, on State Street, and uh, I, I I kept pinching myself. I couldn't believe that I landed at this great firm and i just was looking forward to being there for the rest of my life uh and, th- and then i started talking to some of my new colleagues and i you know, some of the older ones had kind of a resume where they'd worked at different firms and i couldn't understand why they jumped around so much and uh lo and behold uh, my resume kind of looks the same way now you know Hutton, it's how
2: you how you get a new position a new pay raise and more stock uh, options
0: that and sometimes these firms don't uh, don't uh Stay in business. Well, uh,
2: Hutton ended up merging with, didn't it become uh, Shearson, uh, Shearson Lehman, Yeah, Hutton? Yeah, warm, but that's because Hutton,
0: Hutton had some uh, legal issues, to, to, to put put it mildly. Mm-hmm. And so they got taken over by Shearson. But I left about a year before that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, then uh, I went over to uh, Prudential, Beach at the time. Right, uh, Because uh, George Ball was the... Uh, the head of Hutton, then he went to Prudential. Beach. very
2: famous uh, person on Wall Street. I, right. is it? Is it? I'm trying to think of who would be the equivalent of George Ball today. He he was a,
0: a he was a star. Mm-hmm. Definitely was a star. Is he,
2: could you could we say he was the Jamie Diamond of the era, or is that going too?
0: I far? I think that might be going a little bit too far. <laughs> I mean, Jamie Diamond is in a class of his own, but uh, Ball was uh, you know master of the universe back then.
2: And how did you end up working your way to Deutsche Bank? Which then was a giant bank in Germany yeah, well, and now yeah, is yeah. Uh, under a little bit well, of uh, I, actually, pressure.
0: I, actually, uh, from uh, uh, Prudential, I went over to uh, C.J. Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ed Hyman, who's you know the all-time great star in our business, particularly as an economist, uh, decided to go off on his own and brilliantly created uh, ISI Group, uh, which... Uh, Turned out to be a very, very successful firm. But he also
2: created a opening at uh, Lawrence.
0: I have to thank Hyman for creating an <laughs> opp- opportunity at C.J. Lawrence. And uh, for me, C.J. Lawrence was an opportunity to really focus much more uh, on working with institutional investors. Uh, I had a great uh, experience with uh, Prudential and working with, with retail investors, but um, C.J. Lawrence was just, you know, it's, it's nice to change careers within careers uh, as long as it's not, nothing too radical. And C.J. Lawrence uh, itself was a very classy firm in that area. And then
2: from Lawrence, you ended up at Deutsche Bank.
0: Well, C.J. Lawrence was owned by Morgan Grenfell when I went over there. and mm-hmm. Morgan Grenfell was owned, owned by Deutsche Bank. And there was all sorts of regulatory uh, reasons why Deutsche Bank couldn't get into the investment uh, business. Uh, but those regulations changed. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually, C.J. Lawrence's name disappeared. And it just became a series of things like Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank Securities and, and, and the like. So I I, I stayed in, in, in the same office and, you know, the, the firm's name changed around me. So you're
2: trained as an economist. How do you affect that transition to market strategist or investment strategist?
0: Well, you know, uh, life is, uh, is full of opportunities and uh, you just have to kind of uh, hope that they come your way or, or, or make the opportunities come your way. What happened at... Uh, uh, Deutsche Bank Securities is that uh, the uh, Jim Moltz, who uh, was my mentor in many ways. Uh, he was a strategist. I was the economist. I was providing economic data uh, information to him, uh, and he translated it to marketable act- uh, I- ideas. And of course, had his own ideas. Uh, but um, Jim Moltz went over and joined uh, ISI. He went and joined uh, at Hyman, and uh, so they did replace Jim with Tom Galvin, who uh, was the auto analyst. And he did a great job for a couple of years as a strategist. But then he decided to go off uh, to the buy side and manage uh-huh. money. So there was this opening and I just jumped at it and I said, hey guys, you know, I'd be more than happy to do two jobs and you know pay me a little bit more and I'll do economics and strategy. And somehow or other they, they agreed, to, agreed to that. So
2: when did the movie reviews come into your research? Because you're fairly, yeah. amongst many things, you're you're somewhat infamous for including movie film reviews. Well, in your, I, I, your commentary,
0: I joke around that uh, the reason I do movie reviews is in case this uh, career doesn't work out, and this in case this job uh, doesn't work out, I could always become a movie reviewer. Right. Uh, but my wife and I have always enjoyed going to movies, and uh, I guess really it was in the early '90s when I moved to C.J. Lawrence. Uh, we'd have these Monday morning co- uh, conferences with the sales force, uh, relating to them what. I thought, uh, what Jim Moltz uh, thought uh, on the strategy side, what I thought on the economic side. And I just started saying, hey, well, by the way, I saw the following movie uh, on Friday, and uh, I'd say a couple of comments about it, whether I liked them or not. And more often than not, I try to, especially once I started writing these things up, I try to relate it to, uh, to the markets. Uh, but 2004 is the first one I actually have on the website. So they go back quite a ways.
2: This book is filled with all sorts of quotes that I I really enjoy. I'm going to start with a long one, and let's have you comment on it. Economists, especially of the pessimistic persuasion, rarely pay attention to technological developments, yet these developments regularly transform the course of human history. Human nature may not change much over time, but technology often does, does so in ways that profoundly impact human societies their economies, and financial markets. So first, why don't economists pay attention to technology, and and then secondly, why have you found it to be such an attractive area I, I, of I guess
0: a lot of them don't view it as being uh, part of their job. Uh, uh, it's not in their job description. Um, mm-hmm. They tend to be fairly narrowly focused on whatever it is that they choose to focus on in, in graduate school, so they're either micro-economists or macroeconomists or monetary economists. And, um, you know, I'm not too up to date on what they're teaching in grad school these days, but uh, I, I don't think there are really any courses that uh, focus on uh, how technology impacts uh, economies, uh, impacts the way uh, uh, economies evolve, uh, which is kind of bizarre because when you think of it, one of the first economists uh, was Malthus, and Malthus predicted <laughs> that uh, there'd be food shortages. And what he didn't anticipate was technological innovation in agriculture. Um,
2: Clearly, he misunderstood the rate of change of innovation.
0: Yeah, and and then you also have to understand or try to think about how human beings respond to technological innovation. So, again, going back to the Malthusian uh, uh, dire warnings – so as uh, technology improved the ability of agriculture to feed everybody, you didn't really need anybody to, to be out in the fields anymore. You needed far fewer workers. Right. So you saw tremendous urbanization. And guess what? When people go to cities, they have fewer kids. So all this concerns that populations will grow faster than the food supply just co- totally blew up because technology cured the problem. Uh, but, you know, economists, you know, I I, I went back recently and I, I looked at uh, Samuelson's uh, classic mm-hmm. uh, textbook on economics, which is what most most economics students study when they first get into the field. And if you go back to the, you know his first book, I think, in the mid 40s, and look at the latest one, which was written by Samuelson and Nordhaus, you'll see that they define economics as uh, uh, the the study of how you uh, allocate scarce resources mm-hmm. optimally. And I was reading it after and I, I, I kind of added this to my book after I'd written most of it. I said, no, that's not really true. When, when something is scarce, guess what? Entrepreneurs come in and they figure out new technologies to make things less scarce or to substitute for the scarce areas. And microeconomics actually teaches that you know uh, there's no such concept of there is no such thing as scarcity. When something is scarce, its price goes up. You can still get it. Right. You just got to pay a higher price for it. And that encourages entrepreneurs to come in and figure out how to lower that price. My
2: my favorite example is in New York City, if you wanted to hail a cab, it used to be next to impossible Impossible. when you wanted it. Yeah. And then Uber came along and suddenly there are cars everywhere. And by the way, the value of that medallion at $4 million, it's it's now worth 11 cents. That's right. It that scarcity led to a technological innovation. A- absolutely, it's so. So that really raises the question: Why are we missing technology from our economic textbooks? Why hasn't the dismal set figured this out?
0: Well, you know, it, economics started out being called political economy, mm-hmm. uh, and which included philosophy, included economics, included history. It was a broad ranging uh, study of uh, human nature and uh, how it interacts with uh, the environment and and technology was was part of that. And somewhere along the way, uh, economics became very stratif- uh, stratified. I think I, I would, uh, I blame Keynes for a lot, <laughs> right. a, a lot. And, uh, you know, when Keynes invented macroeconomics, that meant that anybody who didn't study macroeconomics was kind of a microeconomist. Uh-huh. And... Um, it's kind of divorced uh, the study of economics from reality, in my opinion. It became too theoretical.
2: And yet, Keynes was a very savvy investor. He understood how economics right. interacted, which leads me to another quote from the book. Investing isn't a moral pursuit. It's not about right or wrong, good or evil. It's about bullish or bearish.
0: Right. Discuss. Well, uh, I guess it was uh, when when Obama got elected, um, there were there were a lot of policies that were being discussed um, that I I thought were just much too interventionist in the mm-hmm. economy, and uh, I, um, I I I was sort of politically biased in my writing, and one of my accounts kicked me in the butt and said, you know, I don't pay you to do Fox News, I don't pay you <laughs> you know for your political views, I pay you for what you've done in the past, which is kind of seemed clearly where the signal is and away from the noise, and a lot of politics is noise. Old noise,
2: yeah, absolutely.
0: And that uh, kind of like brought me to my senses, and being an entrepreneurial capitalist, realizing that this guy's an important account, I started to realize, <laughs> you know, I mean, basically, the market was telling me this is not what you really need to be doing. What you need to be doing is focusing on is it bullish or bearish, not is it good or bad. Don't be a policy—don't criticize the policymakers. Tell me what they're going to do. By the way,
2: that's my pet theory for why so many hedge funds have been underperforming the past decade, they thought they were sitting in think tanks when they were actually managing other people's money, and they got
0: distracted. That's right. So I I tell people I'm not a preacher. I don't do good or bad. I don't do uh, uh, right or wrong. I'm an investment strategist. I do bullish or bearish. And sometimes you can let your political views, if you let your political views get in the way, you could be bearish and miss a great bull market. No, No doubt
2: about it. One last quote. I'll go out on a limb and predict there will be another financial crisis in our lifetimes, However, like previous ones, it will offer great opportunity for buying stocks. So, so how soon is the next financial crisis coming? And at what level should we be buying? Well, those, stocks? Uh,
0: those are all great, great questions, and I'm not going to pretend that I uh, have uh, cl- clairvoyance to tell you exactly when these things are going to occur. But you know, over the past 40 years, uh, I've observed that uh, recessions happen, mm-hmm. uh, and very often they're preceded by a financial crisis. And uh, what's happened in the past is um, uh, credit was too easily available and it was too cheap, and uh, people kinda got caught up in uh, how smart they were. I mean, bull—you know—bull markets make a lot of people very smart. Right. Um, they borrowed a lot of money, and then uh, suddenly we got an inflationary boom. Uh, the Fed had to step on the brakes. And uh, lo and behold, uh, a lot of debtors just couldn't uh, keep making their payments, and the whole thing came unglued. And history is full of this. I mean, it's just uh, it's a t- traditional boom-bust cycle. Um, so let, let's
2: look a little closer at the boom-bust cycle. In the 2000s, at least before the crisis, you had easy credit right. and cheap money. Correct. Today, we have not-so-easy credit, and money was cheap, but it's getting a little less cheap Where are we in that long-term boom-bust cycle?
0: Well, I'm, you know, I I always like to think a little bit outside the box, but uh, but but always uh, stimulated by what the data is telling me, Mm -hmm. and uh, what what the data is telling me, what the experience of the past few years tells me is, maybe just maybe we can have uh, rolling recessions that kind of roll through different industries at different times. So. Didn't we just have a pretty severe recession in the energy and commodity space in 2014, 2015? I mean, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, it was very severe. The amazing thing is how quickly we came out of it in 2016. And that's because one of the big differences between the current environment and the 1930s is that in the 1930s, there's no such thing as distressed asset funds that were looking to buy things at 50 cents on the dollar. Now there are. So when things fall apart, there's money that just kind of pours in to buy these things really cheap. And that kind of keeps the system from really imploding completely. Uh, We just had a recession. We're probably still in a recession in the shopping malls and the retailing industry. And Mm -hmm. we're seeing how that industry is restructuring itself. Um, So, uh, that may be the way things continue to to unfold. So I don't want to say there'll never be a recession again, uh, but we may just have these kind of rolling recessions without the kind of the gut wrenching six to eighteen month downturn that we have experienced uh, during the past forty years that I've been in looking you, at things. The economy is that balkanized that you could get a narrow
2: energy or commercial real estate recession. And it doesn't spill over to the rest of the broad economy? Well, uh, that,
0: uh, you know, maybe I'm uh, showing my uh, in- inherent optimism and in, uh, in kind of aiming in that direction. I mean, clearly, uh, you know, uh, given current events, if we have a trade war, in my book I do write about the Great Depression, and I do believe that the Great Depression was at least triggered by the trade wars by Smoot, the spool and, and all that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, it's certainly conceivable to have a— Economy-wide global recession.
2: I want to talk a little bit about commodities mm-hmm. and and what you describe as your favorite indicator. But I have to start with a, a quote of yours: the best, or or a quote that you write in the book, the best cure for high commodity prices is high commodity prices. Obviously, referring to market forces either right. bringing more supply on or or reducing demand. So, from that, why do you? come to the conclusion that raw industrial spot price index is the best of all economic indicators
0: well commodity markets are probably the most competitive markets uh, they're also uh, very efficiently organized we ha- we have some pretty good institutions where these things are traded where uh, uh, they're they're self-regulating to to a large extent so the the exchanges, uh, have a long history of being uh, very honest uh, brokers between supply and suppliers and demanders of commodities.
2: Your, your end-user consumers, these aren't like speculative, maybe I want to own stocks or not. These are people who are actually buying commodities and using them in, in that's, products. That,
0: that's right. Um, uh, by the way, as, as a side note here, I'm not convinced that some that co- commodities really should be viewed as an asset class mm-hmm. uh, because I, I think that... Uh, Mostly, commodities do have uh, end users that actually want to use them, as opposed to just kind of stockpile them. Commodities don't really have D and E; they don't have dividends, they don't have earnings. So, uh-huh. they're, they're, they're a different kind of animal. But would you, you say
2: th- the same about gold? Because I know the emails from the gold bugs are about to start.
0: Yeah. Well, look, uh, I, I'm. I'm. Gold is a unique commodity. It's the only one that I know of that that has its own fan club, and they call <laughs> they, they call gold bugs and i say that respectfully i don't say that you know uh I, I just don't do gold i i i i need dividends i need earnings mm-hmm. uh i have nothing against owning some gold in a portfolio and uh, most uh, strategists will tell you you know sure go ahead and and own some gold but that's i've had some good calls a few good calls in and 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 gold but uh you know not, not nothing that uh, stands out in any meaningful way but to your question about the crb raw industrials um it's, uh, it's an index that's been around since the 50s, and uh, first monthly, then weekly, now daily. And I found that uh, it's uh, very highly correlated with global economic activity and therefore also U.S. economic activity because the U.S. matters uh, so much. So I watch it on a, on a daily basis uh, for an indication of what the global economy is doing. It's got 13 raw industrials. It does not have oil. It does not have lumber, which I think huh. both those commodities have their own Unique supply and demand characteristics. Sure. And I like to divide it by initial unemployment claims, and I call that the boom bust barometer. So,
2: raw spot price index divided yeah, by initial unemployment, unemployment claims.
0: claims. So, that's that becomes a weekly indicator.
2: And what's the signal that, hey, a recession is coming?
0: Well, it's really a coincident indicator, but it's available weekly. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have to wait for some of the monthly data. Um, so, for example, the CRB raw industrials index took a dive in the second half of 2014 and 2015, Mm -hmm. signaling that uh, something was happening in the global economy that was getting weaker. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it hit a bottom in early 2016 and uh, alerted me that uh, global economic activity was improving. And then I started to see it in some of the indicators that we use for forecasting corporate earnings. And it all sort of kind of came together. Earlier this year, and we're recording this in April 2018, you had
2: said, I think inflation is dead. So what do you mean by that and what does it suggest to bond investors going long, uh, going well, listen, forward? It's
0: it's not a uh, a new mantra for me. I nope. I've, I've been basically of that opinion since uh, the, for the 40 years of my uh my career. I mean it wasn't dead in the late 70s uh, when I started my career. For sure. Uh but um when Volcker uh, adopted uh, monetary policy uh procedures that led to interest rates going straight up I concluded that he would in fact break the back of inflation and the amazing thing the remarkable thing was how quickly inflation came down uh-huh. once policy really aimed at bringing it down and I was uh, I've been a disinflationist uh, which means it doesn't mean falling prices it means that the price the inflation the rate of inflation uh, comes down and I've been a disinflationist throughout my entire career and maybe at some point I need to just you know, let go. Declare victory de- and go de- de- home? De- Declare victory or, or well, you know, I hope in my next 40 years, God, God willing, or you know, what, what, whatever part of that, uh, I I continue to uh, be employed the way I am. And um, yeah, I, I think inflation, what I've learned, is it's not a monetary phenomenon. With all due respect to Milton Friedman, I mean, by now we should all just empirically realize. Clearly. Just, clearly, it's not a monetary phenomenon. I'm not going to tell you it's not at all related to what the central banks are doing. But if anybody had told us that the central banks were going to pile on the kind of liquidity they've put into the system since 2008, we would have all said by now inflation should have been soaring. Hyperinflation. Hyperinflation. I I mean, I didn't see what the the central banks were going to do. And I guess if you told me that, I might have turned into a reflationist. But um, I think what's, uh, what's continuing to work is what's worked for the past 40 years is globalization, uh, global competition. And that's obviously under some stress here with the uh, t- trade tensions. Uh, technological innovation, as we discussed earlier, is, uh, is, is very de- uh, powerful in uh, bringing prices down. And then aging demographics, uh, people getting older, I, older societies, I think, tend to be less inflation prone.
2: Let's talk a little bit about the early days of your career. You got to Wall Street. You mentioned we were in the middle of a very recessionary period. Uh, We had stagflation. We had high oil prices. We had an oil embargo. Stocks essentially went nowhere, and we were coming out of the worst recession since the Great Depression. What was it like to start your career in that environment?
0: Well, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, I was remarkably lucky. I mean, uh, nowhere to go
2: but up. Is that the thing? Well, yeah.
0: I mean, the the seventies the were awful, and I was in graduate school, so you know, <laughs> what 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 did I know? I know I was studying theories and uh, uh, t- taking courses, and what was happening in the the real world really didn't matter all that much to me, except for the fact that uh, I had to wait in the long gasoline lines in nineteen seventy nine. So clearly, we all experienced the angst of uh, high inflation and two energy shocks in 73 and 79. But, you know, I landed on Wall Street in uh, 1978. So kind of in the thick of uh, of all the misery and all the bearishness. And uh, lo and behold, uh, I started to kind of see the light early on in my career that uh, maybe Volcker would break the back of inflation. And if he did, that could bring bond yields down. So I started to talk about... Uh, Uh, What I called uh, head size bond yields uh, when they were over Mm ten percent, and uh, uh, also uh, in the early eighties, turned uh, bullish on stocks. Along with um, my mentor back then on the strategy side was Greg Smith, uh, at uh, first at E F Hutton and then at uh, Prudential. So, I I mean, forty years uh, during the past forty years, the stock market's basically gone from a thousand to. Twenty-six thousand, maybe back down to twenty-four, twenty-five thousand. The bond yield has dropped from well over ten percent to around three percent now. It got as low as one and a half percent. So I count myself just, you know, I just kind of lucked out to be have forty years of uh, my prime focus uh, during bull markets, great bull markets in bonds and stocks. You're
2: credited with creating the term bond vigilantes. Mm -hmm. Why did you come up with that, and
0: what did you mean by yeah, it? Yeah, it'll probably be on my tombstone. You know <laughs> that uh, uh, anytime the bond yield uh, goes up anywhere on the planet Earth, I get a call from somebody in the media saying, uh, you know, are the bond vigilantes uh, back. Uh, so when Greek bond yields were going up, I actually got some calls from Greece asking me if the bond vigilantes had decided to take a vacation in, uh, in, in Greece and cause some trouble over there. But in 1983, um, uh, bond yields were starting to, to go up. There was a fear that inflation was going to come back. And I, I guess I, uh, I was trying to defend my disinflation scenario. I said, don't worry about it. If inflation comes back, if, if the Fed doesn't deal with it, then the markets will deal with it, or the bond market will, will deal with it. I, I recently sort of segued that into the Dow vigilantes within uh-huh. the context of uh, the, 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 the trade tiff that's going on.
2: So let, let's move into equities since you brought it up. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are saying U.S. equities are expensive, especially relative to emerging markets. Where are we in the broader market cycle, and do you think stocks are expensive here?
0: Well, again, looking over the past forty years, I've con- come to the conclusion that what causes uh, bear markets is obvious. it's uh, it's uh, recessions. Um, we had one bear market in nineteen eighty seven that was not caused by recession. but with the benefit of hindsight, I think it was almost like a flash crash right. you know, portfolio insurance. It all occurred sort of in one day. It turned out to be a great buying opportunity. Uh, but certainly there were some pretty nasty recessions in the past uh, 40 years. Benefit of hindsight, if you had the stomach for it and stayed with it, you'd be still very well off. The, the problem we all have, of course, is you know when I was just starting out, I didn't have a lot of money, and I couldn't possibly anticipate the kind of bull markets we had. But to, to get to, to the present, um, stocks are not cheap. They're not cheap in the United States, uh, but a lot of that is um, uh, because the the so-called FANG stocks are very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, take those out, and uh, stocks are sort of fairly valued. Uh, factor in that inflation is low and interest rates are low, uh, then I think you can also argue that uh, stocks are not grossly overvalued. Uh, Warren Buffett uh, has got this fam- uh, famous Buffett ratio, looking at market cap uh, of the S&P 500 to GDP and GDP. Uh-huh. Um, uh, it's back to the highs of 2000, right before the market took a took a dive. Uh, but Buffett's pointing out that he's not paying that much attention to the ratio because inflation and interest rates are, are so low. You know, I, I guess uh, the answer about uh, where we are in the cycle is when will the next recession occur? If we continue to have these rolling recessions, then maybe we will continue to have a very elongated, very maybe the longest expansion ever. And I think people, will, therefore, would be willing to continue to pay relatively high multiples as long as earnings are growing and we just got this huge uh booster to earnings from the from the from the tax cuts so i don't know exactly when the next bear market's going to occur i don't think we're going to have a recession in 2018 this year or next year uh 2020 march 20 is is possible okay
2: that that's that's a fair uh that's a fair
0: but 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 everything's you know i mean you got to keep your wits about you i mean this this trade uh, issue is uh, is a significant one, but I uh, I'm I'm on the side that believes that uh, this too shall pass.
2: So you're looking at these as pronouncements that get walked back and cooler heads prevail, or a trade war isn't that big. Right for now, markets.
0: I view it more as war war of words. Yes. Than than uh, of tweets. Uh, yeah, of tweets. <laughs> That's right. That's uh, rather than an outright uh, trade war. And uh, the fact that the United States uh, is now finding that both Japan and the European Union is joining in uh, uh, basically attacking China for uh, unfair practices, particularly with regards to technology, Mm -hmm. I I think is a a positive development. Uh, Technology, I I think there's something to the idea that trade isn't just about trade. There is a national security issues. Of course. Um,
2: We've already seen a number of Chinese takeovers of U.S. corporations um, prevented because of security concerns.
0: Well, that's become, you know, because, of te- because technology does have such an impact on national security, trade is no longer just about, you know, trading corn for silk or something like that. There's, there, there, there are issues that do bring in some uh, political considerations.
2: So one of the things I find fascinating about you, a lot of people who came of age as investors during the 1970s, they seem to be scarred by it. They have PTSD. They're terrified of inflation. They're terrified of recessions. You seem to have emerged from that era with nary a scratch on you. What do you attribute that to, and and why do you think your outlook differs so much from your peers
0: of that that same era? Well, it's possible that, uh, you know, I— I am very data dependent. You know, the Fed always says they're very data dependent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very empirical, and and sort of the way I I look at things. Uh, I, I think a lot of uh, a lot of people are seem to be wedded to, to theories, uh, and uh, then try to stress the the data to fit that. So I think, you know, in the 1970s, uh, a, a lot of people got conditioned to the idea uh, that inflation uh, is a a problem that uh, was created by central bankers and would continue to be created by central bankers. There was a lot of fears that deficits uh, would uh, lead to to ruin. And um, look, I'm a conservative fellow. I don't like deficits. I don't like central banks. Uh, I call them central monetary planners uh, running amok. But again, I'm not a preacher. You know, I'm not saying you know right or wrong. I'm saying what what are, what are we actually seeing? And what I I guess what I sensed is that. Um, there's more to to our economy than just policymakers. There's a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of businesses, a lot of workers, and uh, I, one of my kind of pitches when I visit accounts who get, get worried about policy is said, "Look how well we've done despite Washington." Right. And that's 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 kind of helped me focus on the, the importance of understanding that the people get up in the morning and they go to work and they they, they want to work. They want to make money. They want to create something. And, uh, you know, I see that especially now that I'm an entrepreneurial capitalist myself. I have my own firm. And um, every day I, I, I want to stay in business and I want to grow my business. And and that's completely independent of what policymakers do. I mean, if they get in my way, I'll do the best I can to to run my business with the policies that, that I have to deal with.
2: So you, we've talked a bit about technology and the Malthusians. Um, what do you think of the fear that we see among some economists that technology and robotics is going to take away everybody's jobs, and we'll soon all of us will be unemployed, and it'll just well, be in the, Amazon?
0: In the book, I, I address that issue, uh, kind of uh, under a subheading of uh, "Brave New World," and mm-hmm. uh, another uh, section is called "Ice Spartacus," the uh, the idea that uh, you know androids are going to be doing all uh, all the dirty work for us, and one of them will rise up, I Spartacus, and you know everybody will the the androids will revolt and uh, 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 launch a revolution against the humans. Look, Japan is a good example. Japan's kind of sort of a leading indicator for the rest of us. They're geriatric, an uh, aging uh-huh. society. Uh, their unemployment rate is extremely low. They've got uh, what appears to be uh, actually a shortage of workers, and yet probably they're the, are the most robotized, automated economies uh, in the world. Uh, the demography on a global basis, we're just, you know, we're, we're sort of on the road to self-extinction. Fertility rates have collapsed around the world, with the only exception being India and Africa. Mm-hmm. And those two may change as urbanization continues. We, uh, we
2: were ahead of Europe for a long time here in the United States, and we've sort of fallen into that, yep. you know, fraction of a percentage Fertility rate in the U.S. Uh,
0: Exactly. So And and the labor force growth because of the aging of the baby boomers, we really are seeing around the world, with a few exceptions, that working age populations are really declining. Mm -hmm. And so we actually need robotics and automation to do things that we don't have people to do.
2: What about skilled immigration? Do we want to pull the best and brightest from around the world, or how how should we be operating that?
0: Immigration historically has always been a source of economic growth. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I would attribute uh, some of the surprising growth in Europe over the past couple of years to the to the million people that uh, uh, migrated from Africa and the Middle East to, to Europe. I mean, a lot of us looked at it and said, oh, this is going to be terrible. I mean, the, the mix of cultures is going to be horrendous. And by the way, it hasn't been pretty. I mean, there's been, the crime rates have gone up. But still, you know, Germany's economy is absolutely booming. And mm-hmm. I would say that it's just another example that sometimes uh, – I mean, historically, migration has been a source of growth.
2: Can you stick around? I have a ton more questions for you. Sure. We have been speaking with Dr. Ed Yardeni of Yardeni Research, uh, an author of the new book, Predicting the Markets, a Professional Autobiography. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue to discuss all things markets. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Check out my daily column on bloombergview.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you, Ed, for doing this. I've been looking forward to to going over um, the book and some other stuff. I've been getting your research for a long time, and I always find it um, quite fascinating. But I have to start with a question about the book. So you crank out a lot of material every day. I could tell you read a lot, you write a lot. What was your process like for writing the book, and how challenging was it on top of everything else you do.
0: Well, in some ways, I've been writing the book for 40 years, right? Okay. Cause it's, uh, you know, uh, and, and in the book, I, I point out, I I really didn't have to do much research because that's what I've been doing for the past 40 years. So. But
2: still getting 300 words yeah. out of, yeah. on, on well, pages, 300 uh, yeah. pages of words. I, I tell you
0: the truth, I didn't know I had it in me. I mean, right. when I put it all together, I couldn't believe how much I'd written. It's, you know, the book is 600 pages long. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I guess 40 years, you you know, you, I had things to say, and I wanted to write them down. So it's, it's kind of like, I don't play the piano, but it, I guess it's kind of like sitting at the piano and saying, and being a composer and saying, I don't know what I'm possibly going to compose, and suddenly it just comes to you. There's an um, right. But once, once I organize the book uh, under, once I organize the structure of the book, and it's all, every chapter is about predicting, and you know, I started with predicting the past, kind of reviewing uh a quick overview of things, uh, then predicting bonds and stocks. Once I did that, um, it, uh, it, it was a pretty fast, uh, effort. So a lot of it was written actually from the summer of 2006 to the summer of 2007. And, uh, obviously at nights and on uh, weekends, um, uh, and sometimes when I, uh, had some uh, gaping holes in what I needed to put in the book, I'd, uh, put it in my, my daily, write it up there, think about it, research it, and then throw it into the book. Huh,
2: quite, quite interesting. And how long did it take you to write this, other than the 40 years, to actually- Well,
0: I, I the bulk of the book was written from two thousand somewhere of 2016 to the summer of 2017.
2: So let's talk a little bit about index funds. You know, they had been invented around the time your career right. started, but they really haven't captured the popular imagination like they have since the financial crisis, what do you think about the role of index funds in in an investor's portfolio? And to what would you attribute this sudden recognition that hey, this is cheap, easy, and efficient?
0: Well, I, I think it's uh, you know the, the 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 media made it clear that this is uh, an alternative way. I think also a lot of uh, stockbrokers started to promote the idea that. Uh, You know, uh, the individual investor could could buy indexes. And by the way, a lot of institutional accounts, when they want to be long technology, will maybe just buy uh, an index uh, that uh, monitors technology or has technology stocks. So I think it just kind of fed on itself. Um, And uh, here we are with uh, an ETF of just about anything that uh, you can trade on the planet Earth.
2: And you've been doing this long enough where you've gotten a number of things very right. Uh, what are the things that you've gotten wrong that stand out in your mind, and, and what lessons did you take from those?
0: Well, I think in our last uh, conversation, you asked me about Y2K, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, 2000 uh, in, in 1998, 99, I, uh, uh, I started to focus on uh, on Y2K as a potential uh, problem. And uh, this is a good example of how uh, you shouldn't mess around with subjects that you don't fully understand. And uh, you know, i, I I'm, I'm uh, I, I like technology. I use it a lot, but I uh, I, 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 I used to I used to uh, I, st- I studied assembler programming, but I'm not a coder. So, um,
2: but we could we could make the defense for you that hey, you helped draw attention to a potential problem, and a lot of time and resources were thrown at that problem which made it considerably smaller well, uh, would, than it might have been otherwise. Well, I,
0: I was at the time uh, very publicly monitoring what corporations were saying in their uh, uh, SEC filings about how much they were spending, mm-hmm. and it really added up to about $50 billion. So, uh, you, you know, I, I, I obviously was concerned about a problem that corporations were concerned about, but the fact of the matter is they dealt with it and nothing happened. It was right. like, and so, when nothing happened, I was a little bit embarrassed because I, I thought it, it could lead to a recession. Benefit of hindsight, I, sh- I should have, I think I had the right issue. You, but I, you but, could but, have declared I, victory. I, said, I, was, I, was, I was right for the wrong reason. Uh, benefit, benefit of hindsight, what really happened is corporations went on a technology spending boom and used Y2K as an excuse to get all the brand used hardware and software. And then, uh, when the millennium occurred, all that spending just dried up. Right. And the whole thing just kind of imploded it, and we it, had a, a tech wreck.
2: It, it's pretty easy, with the benefit of the hindsight, to look at those March 2000 um, earnings misses and conference calls as, oh, all that spending in 99 was pulled forward. Right, Maybe you pulled five years' worth of spending forward, right. and that's what led to a, yeah. uh, a dearth. Uh, and, and suddenly, even reasonably priced stocks became very pricey on the tech right. side. Didn't didn't take a lot to watch those profits disappear. Um, there was one other question I wanted to ask uh, ask you uh, about the bond vigilante term. Where where did the idea that there were certain players in the bond market that would either punish the Fed or at least use their portfolios as a way to draw attention to the threat of inflation? Where where did that come from? It's kind of an unexpected.
0: Well, you know, I, 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 back then I was writing um, a, a weekly. Now I write a daily. And, uh, you know, uh, I always find that uh, I, I feel a responsibility. If I going to sit down and write something, I want people to read it. Uh, so uh, I try to read it write it in a way that makes it interesting. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm constantly coining, you know, I, I coined that hat size bond ID. Right. And uh, the bond vigilantes was just something I— uh, put into I think it was July 1983 piece. They just kind of got a life of its own. Suddenly, kind of c- caught on.
2: I uh, was I was looking for a film derivation that it came from some posse n- going after. Yeah, I, no I, such I, luck. Yeah,
0: no no no, no <laughs> such no such luck in in that particular case. But you know, in the in the early 90s, the Clinton administration basically paid homage to the Bon vigilantes uh, when uh, Clinton's advisors told them, you know, you can't do that because. The 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 bond folks won't let you get away with it.
2: Robert Rubin, right? Robert Rubin Very famously Car- said, uh, Car- Car-
0: "Carville, I think." Uh, what was the famous Car- quote? Something that uh, you know from uh, reborn. I want to be reborn as a, you know, a a He didn't say bond vigilante, but you know, a bond god or whatever.
2: And and so you've been on both sides of the research aisle as both an economist and a strategist, right? How do those roles differ, and, and how does that affect the sort of work you do each day?
0: Well, they really uh, they really should be one and the same. It kind of goes back to our conversation earlier about uh, uh, how um, academics and uh, professionals, uh, th- the nature of things is we, we tend to become very uh, uh, segmented and very kind of uh, confined to viewing what we do uh, very narrowly. Uh, fortunately for me, I was able to uh, segue from economics into investment strategy and uh, and 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 make them sort of the same the, the same subject. Uh, really, because
2: I mean, people, some people say that predicting the economy and predicting the stock market are two totally different.
0: Well, I I just wrote a book that uh, says the know, opposite. It says the opposite that uh, you know you you want to understand the economy and you want to understand the financial markets and you want to. Appreciate how the two uh, I- interact. Uh, markets can affect policy. Uh, policies can going affect, affect markets. Um, economic uh, events um, cause people to change the the way they, uh, they they view markets. So I think they're very much uh, one and the same. So in other words,
2: you're not going to get your economic forecast wrong, but your market forecast right. If if you're getting one right, you should get the other right. And you if you're should. getting one wrong. You're probably going to have problems in the other one.
0: You, you should, but uh, I mean, it's I mean, I, it's conceivable that you could get an economic scenario right uh, overall, um, and yet still miss the markets. But um, I, I think uh, it's for, for starters, it's always get good to get the economy right, uh, and if you can do that, and I found historically getting inflation right has been paramount.
2: Paramount. So so. Everything comes down to the right inflation forecast. Inflation gets you the economy right. It also gets you the Fed right. And then it gets you- The markets right. The markets right. The
0: valuation right. I mean, right now, uh, if I'm going to be just dead wrong, inflation would make an amazing comeback. Mm -hmm. And suddenly all these deficits that uh, we're looking at become a real concern. Much worse. Uh, Much worse. Uh, Well, interest rates will be a lot higher and uh, deficits will be- So it'll be a completely different scenario. But- uh, hey, look, if I have to change my views, I'll do that. I mean, again, I'm, I'm not stuck to theory. I'm not stuck to uh, right or wrong. I'm, uh, I just do bullish or bearish. Huh?
2: That's quite fascinating. Um, there was one other question I wanted to ask you about uh, the market cycle. And you, you almost addressed it before, but I want to bring it back to this. So here we are. The market made its lows in March '09. It made new highs in 2013. Uh, the economy continues to expand. However, we're starting to see the average job creation slide a little bit. You go back five years and we were doing 250 a month and then two and a quarter and 220. Now we're on, on track to doing um, something like 165 a month mm-hmm. and we're recording this after a, a disappointing 110000 right. um, scenario, is the economy cooling off? What does this mean for inflation, and what does this mean for stock markets?
0: Well, in the, in the past, when the unemployment rate was this low, uh, we would have a boom. I mean, uh, companies would scramble to hire workers. They'd be paying much higher uh, wages. They'd be expanding their capacity, and inflation would take off. The Fed would tighten, and you'd have a recession. <laughs> uh Ah, the old days. Uh, the old days. Right now, we've got uh, a very tight labor market, but we're not seeing wage inflation uh, take off. Uh, Why is that? Because
2: that seems to be the key to a lot of future uh, issues. Uh,
0: look, both uh, both policy I'm, I'm, and market-wise. I, I, I'm uh, I'm I'm 68. I just wrote a book about the past 40 years, and uh, I hope to write another book about the next 40 years or 20 years or whatever. The uh, I'm 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 granted, uh, but uh, I haven't had a pay increase in about 10. Maybe twenty years. Is uh, that true? A, well, there's a lot of baby boomers huh. that made a lot of money in their careers. From you know, I've, I'm 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 making a lot more money now than I was making when I was first started in the business. But the reality is, I think there's a lot of baby boomers just aren't retiring. Those bastards. And, and they're not getting pay increases because they're getting paid enough. Right. And in some cases, uh, their pay is going down because, but they still want to work. Uh, So, how much of
2: this is just a a hangover from the great financial crisis and a loss of people feel like, hey, I lost a good couple of years before and after that. I can't retire. I have to keep working.
0: I think that's well past. I think we're well past that. I think people that Mm -hmm. are working now, I think a lot of baby boomers that are still working really do want to work. um,
2: So, this isn't, I have to work because I need to. This is. Hey, I like working, and it gives me a, a function so. and a purpose. I
0: think so. I think people are living longer, and uh, the, you know, uh, some people can retire and play golf and tennis and uh, go travel around the world. Um, I personally can't do that. I mean, I I I need to be working. I need to be thinking. Uh, keep 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 my mind uh, going. I love this business because I, I don't know of any business that kind of keeps you so focused on current events and thinking about how the world actually works. Mm-hmm.
2: So, so let's, let's stay with the issue of wages. You yep. said your wages have, your personal wages personal, have been yeah. flat for a decade. Right.
0: I'm not complaining. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, but lots of people's wages have been flat for several decades. Well, what uh, does this mean? Yeah, well, They're uh, real wages.
0: Yeah. There, there's a, there's a section in the book where I focus on predicting the consumers and mm-hmm. pre- and predicting demography in which I, 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 uh, I, I think I may I convinced myself that the notion that uh real incomes have been stagnant uh for the past 15 years it just doesn't jibe with, with 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 the data uh it's, now it's, when you
2: say the data I want to really get into this a little yeah. bit I don't have any doubt that the quality of life for people has gone up significantly exactly even as their wages have remained somewhat well that's flat
0: the the the, the, the flat uh, earth concept is based on entirely on a series that's produced annually by the Census uh, Bureau Uh on money income, uh, where they ask people uh, about their money income. They don't ask them about uh, uh, non-money sources of income. So entitlement programs, I mean, Social Security's in there, but not Medicare, not Medicaid. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just a huge discrepancy between personal income, which is available monthly. Uh, But uh, the, the problem is, when you look at median, the census data is median. I can't give you a median on in personal income. I can give you an, uh, a mean. I can give you an average, but I can't give you the you know the, the family in the middle. Right. But when you look at the average, it's it's up like 25 percent in real terms over the per household. Uh, and by the way, I believe household is the best way, measure uh, for uh, measuring standard of living. My, kids have a great standard of living, I wish I lived as well as they did. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, the, the 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 data for average real incomes is up like 20, 25% whether you use personal income. If you use average hourly earnings, uh, you're, you're up about as, as much. So I think there's, for some reason, there's been this focus on this one data series and Trump mentioned it when, when he was running uh, for, for president that people's earnings have stagnated the data just doesn't show that consumption is at an all-time record high. No, no you know? doubt about that. And e- so cost- Even
2: as stores close, consumption continues to rise. Yeah, yeah. So, how, how much of that is healthcare spending, and how much of that is um, goods and services that aren't related it's, to that? It's, it's
0: really all of the above. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, standards of living have gone up uh, across the board.
2: So, if there was one area that that you had one magic wish to fix. In the economy and public policy and what have you, what would that be? Because I know you think about these things long and hard.
0: Well, um, you know, I, I, I'd like to believe uh, the supply siders that uh, you cut uh, taxes and you're going to uh, get a lot more uh, work and a lot more income and it'll kind of pay for itself.
2: I, I sense some skepticism on your part in the way you frame that question. Well, it's
0: it's it's faith-based economics, <laughs> uh, you know. And, it it uh, hasn't.
2: It it always unleashes some animal spirits, but it rarely pays. It well, never seems to pay for itself.
0: Well, that's because uh, you know maybe the po- poli- the politicians use that as an excuse. It's like, well, we can go ahead and increase entitlement programs and uh, not means test them and uh, not worry about all these pension. Uh, you know, I mean, school teachers are uh, basically uh, on strike in some states because they're not getting paid enough. Uh, yeah,
2: there are places where uh, they literally have had no raises for 10 yeah, years. Yeah, and then we have a situation
0: in, in Flint, Michigan, where the water uh, supply has been polluted. And a lot of that is because we we have this amazing concept that you're entitled to retire. Uh, and if you're a municipal worker, you're allowed to retire at a very early age, and those bills are extremely expensive.
2: It's one thing for cops who take their life into their hands every time they go to work, and the same with firemen. But when you have clerical workers with these very generous pension funds, although well,
0: it's 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 generally yeah exactly. I mean, it's uh, I I I agree that at uh, an individual basis, people who have uh, ris- risky professions. But you know, a, a a lot of a lot of municipal workers, when they retire early, get another job, right? And they get another pension. And um, maybe we should consider that come back when you're 65, and then we'll pay you the pension at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to get a lot of people mad at me here, but too late. Uh, it's too late. I guess <laughs> uh, I've, I've crossed the line. Uh, but, but that but, is
2: that is not a radical philosophy that you're pers- saying. And also, lots of these pension funds. They're wildly underfunded, and it's questionable if these people are going to get.
0: That's right. I mean, uh, while a lot of uh, municipal workers who retired years ago have done extremely well, I, I I, I think we're getting to the point where the pension funds just, the money's just not there, and people have been made promises that can't be delivered. Right,
2: right. Charlie Ellis has been writing about this for a while. I know I only have you for a finite amount of time. So let me get to some of my favorite questions. Um, tell us the most important thing that people don't know about you.
0: Well, um, there are a lot of things that are, are, are too uh, personal to uh, to share, obviously. So I've only... Uh, that's why I wrote a professional autobiography. Right. You know, it's, it is very professional, uh, and uh, I don't... Uh, I, I don't say anything bad about anybody. I don't uh, have any grudges that I, that I settle in the in, in the book. I, no grudges. No, I'm not shocked. No, I've, I've,
2: I've six hundred pages. Not a single grudge. Not, a, not right. a
0: single ding. Uh, <laughs> I would say what they don't may not what they don't know about me is I'm working on my second book already. Already. It, already. God, it yeah. took
2: me like five years before I can even think well, about a second this. Well, this
0: this is the this book. I is the book that I. I had to write uh, just because I you know I, I'd learned so much over 40 years just not to do it was would be a shame right uh, the the book the, the work I'm working on now is the one I want to write it's more philosophical it's more more about what I've learned philosophically about uh, huh. about things and it's called the uh, the, the, the um, theft of Nations uh, a um, you better
2: go trademark that before someone grabs it. Well,
0: uh, with book titles, there's or, there anybody already- Anybody can use there, Anybody can use There already is a book of that, but it's uh, basically the capitalist ideal and its corruption. Capitalism makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneurial capitalism, I'm, I'm an entrepreneurial ca- capitalist, so it makes so much sense that it benefits consumers, and consumers are the only class that we really should care about. So why does a constantly get corrupted? Uh, wh- why can't we stick with it? Uh, and so um, that's what they don't know about because I'm, I'm writing another book.
2: That's that's interesting. Tell us about some of your early mentors. You already
0: mentioned uh, Mr. Smith. Who else were? Well, uh, G- Greg Smith and uh, Jim Moltz were my mentors on the investment strategy side. But uh, my role model—I never worked with him—was uh, Henry Kaufman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Henry Kaufman was the chief economist at. Solomon Brothers, highly regarded in the '70s, and helped to
2: save New York City, right? Yeah, I yeah, I think correctly. I
0: believe so. Um, but uh, when I was a graduate student, uh, I was uh, impressed by how he had uh, uh, taken economics and uh, uh, used that for a very successful career on Wall Street, and that very much appealed to me. Uh, and um, in a lot of the ways he looked at things. Uh, Using a flow of funds ap- approach is mm-hmm. kind of the way I started. Um, but um, I developed my own tools that worked better for me than the ones that worked for him. Who, who else influenced your
2: approach to economics and investing?
0: Well, uh, I, I think that's it. I mean, it's not really a, 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 a—
2: It's one and the same.
0: It's kind of one and the same, right.
2: Tell us about some of your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction, market-related yeah, or not. Yeah,
0: um, you know, uh, I guess uh, I like history a lot, mm-hmm. quite a bit, uh, and because uh, I am so involved and, and fascinated by, by what I do for a living, my, my day job, I read a lot of stuff that's that's relevant to, to that. So I really like reading uh, biographies, autobiographies, so I really enjoyed um, uh, ben Bernanke's uh, book, the the, *The the Courage to Act*. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's been uh, r- books written uh, by and about Alan Greenspan. Um, so those have been some of my relatively recent reads. And *Age I of re- Turbulence*
2: I, was that Greenspan's book? Yeah, or age, was that- age,
0: *Age of Turbulence*. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also um, like uh, watch, watching movies, but I, I've started to really get into some of these uh, docudramas, and there's. Uh, there's one about the the the, the, the men who uh uh kind of overcame the american frontier it's about frontiersmen uh-huh. uh it's fascinating how uh, uh a few individuals really sort of uh uh opened up uh, the american continent they uh, un- unfortunately uh displaced a lot of uh, native tribes here and uh and there was a lot of wars that were 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 just and massacres were awful but fascinating uh to watch some of these docudramas.
2: What excites you about the markets right now?
0: Well, uh, I would say that uh, the the drama is 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 always exciting. I mean, it was getting kind of dull there in uh, two thousand and seventeen. Right, relentless D- this simple market going up. Boy, it was forty fifty a day with right no with, volatility, no volatility, just and uh, boring. Yeah, and and um, I was. Uh, you know, I mean, for me, it was it was fortunate because I could focus on my book without having to suddenly scramble to learn about something that, uh, that was occurring. And now all of a sudden I'm scrambling to kind of review what I've, I know about trade and uh, those kind of issues. So, the, I mean, tr- Trump right now is a fascinating character. I mean, love him or hate him. Again, I don't do- uh, He's not boring. He's not boring. Right? I guarantee you, you that. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I, I just, you know, he, he really should have uh, just uh, stopped tweeting he should have like take gone gone and take a vacation after the tax cut and just kind of winged it until the midterm elections but he just can't he can't stop he can't he's compulsive talk. he cannot compulsive. help himself there's no um, doubt
2: about it i i'm shocked that he finally came out and said something about stormy daniels because he had been radio silent on that for while the whole thing was unfolding you know he something had to come out eventually
0: well uh again uh, i i think um you know, we live in interesting times. We always do, and uh, you know, seeing a president that you know one month can give you extraordinarily bullish policies of cutting taxes, and then one a month or two later start to talk about protectionism, and suddenly that's extremely uh, bearish. It's wild. It's it, it makes for very interesting times.
2: Let me push back on that a touch because sure. I have I have friends who are investors right. on both sides of the aisle, and. Collectively, they seem shocked. Shocked to discover gambling going on here. <laughs> he's been talking. He campaigned it's, on. It's all there. Right. Like, who is? He, or or he, did they think? Well, well he's just
0: kidding. What's unusual about him is he's going through a checklist. Yeah. And you know, I mean, if you go and read his speech on tra- his campaign speech on trade, it's all, he's just going through the. This checklist. This is
2: it. He he's he's doing. A, that's why I'm always surprised when people say. Well, the market wasn't prepared for this. Yeah, really? Did you not see eighty-six speeches where this exact thing was laid out? Well,
0: you know, we, we kind of got uh, we kind of got slow and lazy in two thousand seventeen. I mean, I guess that he came after healthcare and that did, fell apart. So everybody mm. figured that a agenda... that was
2: much harder though when well, you yeah, but everybody taking a taking yeah. an entitlement away yeah. is very challenging.
0: Yeah, but but the result was everybody figured that his agenda was dead that he couldn't get anything through. Then all of a sudden, we're all, we're mostly on vacation on December twenty-second. We right. pass this amazing tax uh, t- tax legislation, and by the way, its ultimate impact is kind of confusing. It may already actually be depressing New York and California and other other places where you know, high
2: tax states, high uh, high yeah, deductible states yeah, are going to be problematic. We may find
0: that whatever stimulus it provides to some people are offset by the tax increases to others.
2: I just read that California, if it was a country, has now become the sixth largest economy in the world. Doesn't seem to be really having that bad of an effect. Uh, Although we really haven't seen the tax repo. Everything we're doing now for April 15th is 2017. That's right. We won't really feel the tax hit until 2018.
0: I don't, yeah. Until 2019. I I personally don't know what my taxes are going to be in 2018 other than they're going to be higher. (laughs)
2: Because you're a New York resident. Because I'm a New you're, York you resident. You actually live ten minutes Island, from me. Next, yeah, we're
0: next to you. We're we're one town yeah. apart.
2: Yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, what you do for fun. What What do you do to relax? What do you do when you're out of the office to just sort of kick back and, well, and get said, away from? Well, as I
0: said, my wife and I like to uh, go see uh, a movie every Friday night. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm not sure what she's going to. Uh, p- she she usually is the one who picks them. So. Uh, Oh, and I, I review them.
2: What what has been the tell us the last three movies you saw?
0: Well, the the one that sticks out is actually the one that uh, won an Academy Award for something. I'm not I don't recall what it was, but it wasn't for best picture. It's called Get Out. You know, it's 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 a comedy. It's sort of a comedy or a parody. It's a it's a, it's, it's it's a strange movie. It's a movie about a, a, a fellow who goes uh, uh, visits his girl girlfriend and. Uh, uh, his his girlfriend's parents and there's just something totally odd about the whole situation and everything suggests that he should just get the hell out of there as quickly as possible and he just doesn't get the the message and i kind of try to relate that to the market is like you know sometimes just look around you uh, uh but in terms of what i really enjoy i like to play tennis Quite a bit, but oh just, really? Yeah, but uh, but I but the problem is when I play with my wife, she's very competitive and I'm not, uh-huh. so she's always beating me. But I I don't really get upset about that. But, uh, uh, but I, I think she's mad that I I don't try to be more competitive. But I just do it for the exercise. Otherwise,
2: it, it's a great sport. I have come to it late in life, and yeah, find no, it's it fun. Be, it's it's fun. It's um when I started playing the next court over, there are these four guys they have to be 100 years old and they're they play every week it keeps you going and they're great yeah, that's the yeah. crazy thing is yeah. you don't have to run around like other sports right. you basically just have to be aware of right. and where I don't you think you will.
0: hurt yourself as much like playing basketball or
2: well i got yeah. my wife killed my basketball career in my late 30s yeah. i rolled my ankle came home yeah, and she was like yeah. yeah you're done you're done and it yeah. turned out to be pretty right. uh, pretty accurate um have you seen ready player 1 no that the book was wonderful. It just came out. I'm looking forward to to seeing that. Maybe that'll
0: be the one I'll see you with my wife tonight.
2: I don't know uh, how Spielberg is going to take this. The whole film is essentially, in it. the whole book is essentially, uh, exists in an in um, alternative world. Uh, cyberspace world Sorry, yeah. and there's an ongoing internal dialogue right. for the main character it'll be interesting to see how he how he did that Well
0: we'll definitely go see it. What sort of
2: advice would you give to a millennial or <laughs> a recent college graduate who said, "Hey Dr. Ed, I'm thinking about going into market strategy or economics?"
0: Oh god, I mean you just uh, set me up for for a commercial here. Read my book. Uh-huh. I mean that's you know I, I, throughout my career I've had uh, People ask me, you know, what, what, what is there one book that they should read or that they should have their interns read to really understand the markets? And uh, I think um, I had to write the book partly to to say, well, read my book. That
2: that's your answer. That's my that's answer. The answer is it's, it's all it's, in there. It's
0: crass commercialism, but uh, <laughs> it is what it is. It's all in there.
2: And and tell us something you know about the world of markets, investing, and economics today. That you wish you knew forty years ago when you were first starting.
0: Well, I, I think this idea of just stay laser focused on, uh, bull- the, you know, the, 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 what what we really have to, to do in our business is just is a, is, is focus on whether events, uh, policies, uh, are, are bullish or bearish, uh, and that's just not at the macro level. That's you know, you could be looking. At, at, at companies as well and um, you can be critical of management and the stock goes up anyways. And you have to really try to figure out what is it that the market's focused, that's important to the market. Uh, so uh, don't, you know, it's, it's, I just, I, I learned the uh, wisdom of old adages, like don't fight the market, let the trend be your friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best uh, cure for high commodity prices is high commodity prices. Uh, you know, that's why they're old adages because uh, Guys like me, uh, after a while, appreciate just how how much wisdom there is there.
2: Well, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much, Ed. I appreciate uh, your time. Thank you, Barry. We have been speaking with Dr. Ed Yardeni of Yardeni Research, uh, an author of the new book, Predicting the Markets, a Professional Autobiography. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud – Uh, wherever you find your favorite podcasts and you could see any of the other 200 or so such conversations we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column on bloombergview.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff who helps to put together this conversation each week. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Taylor Riggs is our producer slash booker. Medina Parwana is our audio engineer slash producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.